Christ born not only among us, which is amazing, but for us. God looking across history from eternity past, seeing you, with all of your unspoken fears, all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame, all the, all the wrong you would do and all the wrong that people would do against you. And for that reason, born for you, born for me. Let's thank him. Jesus, we rightfully set aside the month of December to remember your birth, but we really should remember all day through the year on any day that you were given for us. You chose to come for us. Thank you. Now, Lord, I have the privilege of opening your word. May the gospel, the good news that it announces be very, very clear. May its implications our practical working out what this good news means for us be so clear and so compelling that we would joyfully do what you say. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning and welcome back. Happy New Year. How are all of you? Unenthusiastic. Got it. Okay. <laughs> would you please open your Bibles in this new year? I want to invite you to read the Bible more and better, more clearly, with more understanding than you ever have before. Uh, this is the time of year where people ask me, what is the best Bible reading plan? There's a very simple answer. The best Bible reading plan is the one you will use, whatever that is. If you want to read through the Bible in a year, that's a great idea. If you want to read through the New Testament this year, that's a good idea. If you want to spend, as I will, several months in a single book, read all about it, read all of the Old Testament references in it, read those stories in uh, First Peter specifically, which I'll preach to you later this year. Uh, we'll move through the book of First Peter, so I've been reading and listening to it for a few weeks. I thought I knew the book, turns out I don't know much about it at all. It's absolutely wonderful. If you need a reading plan in my church-wide email, which generally arrives on Thursday afternoon, that's already in your inbox. It's been a holiday, so maybe you've been ignoring email. If you subscribe to that email, it's already there. If you can't find it, if you have never subscribed to it and you'd like to have it, use the email that's in the bulletin. Send me an email and I will forward that to you. The Bible is an encounter with God. It is God's word to us and for us. So along with inviting you to read wherever you like and however you like, I'd like this year more than in the past for us to read the Bible together. We'll start this morning in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to share with you the second half of this chapter, but I want to read you the first part of Philippians chapter 2 so that you'll understand, I think, with more depth, more clarity, there'll be more weight into what follows the passage that I'm going to explain to you if you understand what comes before it. Here's the setting. Paul's in prison and writing from prison a letter bursting with joy and gratitude to, according to the last part of the letter, the single church of all the churches he knows, the Philippians alone have chosen to send Paul not only financial support, but a man with it to come alongside him in prison and minister to Paul in his time of need. 
If you take Paul at his word in Philippians chapter 4, it may be that once again in this particular prison, as he had many times before, Paul was actually suffering hunger. Because in the jails and prisons of the ancient world, you largely depended upon people outside the prison, the people who cared about you to sustain you. There were precious few guarantees and provisions made for prisoners in the ancient world. That custom endures to this day in many countries outside of the United States. So this letter is really a long thank you letter bursting with joy. The word joy crops up over and over again. And the reason that Paul is so joyful is found in Philippians chapter 1. Read in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership from the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I take it from that, I don't know the entire backstory, but I take it from that, that Paul is telling them, from the moment you heard the good news about Jesus, not only did you accept and trust him, you understood your responsibility to make sure that others heard about him too. And you partnered with me, you put the shoulder under the burden of ministry, and you help me get the message out. Now they're doing it again from pri- while Paul is in prison. They've sent him again not only money, but a person, and Paul is so comforted and so joyful, he writes them this letter. Now, the public reading that we're going to do of the Bible, Philippians chapter 2. That's so you can understand the context, the reason he wrote them in the first place. Philippians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the seats. Philippians 2 verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Crosspoint Church says, Amen. Amen. Lord, open our understanding to your word that we may take it to heart, that we may make no excuses, that we may not minimize it, that we may not explain away what it clearly tells us by arguing that we have our own reasons and our own understanding. 
I pray that that would start most of all with me. You'd spare me the hypocrisy of preaching better than I live. In Jesus' name, amen. How are the New Year's resolutions going? It's only the second day of the year, so hopefully some of them are still intact. How are y'all doing with it? I have already feel like I've achieved a great deal because, for reasons known only to them, a bunch of athletes and former athletes, someone somehow looped me into a group chat and challenged me among these beasts that walk among the earth to do a hundred push-ups a day during the month of December. And pride is a terrible motivator. Rather than say, I'm not in your class, I can't do any of this, I did my own version of a hundred push-ups during the entire month of December, and folks, I'm very tired. Everything hurts. It was a terrible idea. Some of you are in the room that are in that group chat. Never again, okay? Don't think less of me, and I don't care, frankly, if you do. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. My back hurts. My shoulder hurts. It was a terrible idea. That was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, if ever that was ever a good idea. It's done now. But most of us set out some kind of resolution, some kind of goal. We have some kinds of ambitions in the new year. It's a strange psychological thing because really nothing has changed. It's just an arbitrary designation on the calendar, but I'm seeing it again on social media. People are posting new year, new me. We'll see in February. <laughs> I read that 60% of gym memberships purchased in January are never used. Not one time. Like, wow, what? Not even once? Uh, you'd think you'd go once, get discouraged, and never come back, but not even once. The entire motivation was to get the membership, and then we're done until next year. I want to talk to you about working something out from the passage that I didn't read, what follows the reading I just did. That, I promise, on the confidence of, with the confidence of Scripture, if you take the message I'm about to share with you, not my delivery of it, if you take the truth of God's Word, all my message is going to try to do is to explain to you in clear, understandable ways, a way that at least will make sense to me what this passage means. And I promise you, if you take it to heart and put it into practice, and you practice it more often than you fail at it, and when you stumble and struggle and fail, you get right back to it and you ask God's forgiveness and you, again, remembering what his word tells you to do, you set your hand back to the plow and get back to it. You will be a substantially different person. You'll be more like Jesus this time next year. In fact, if you put it into practice in the next two months, you will be noticeably, visibly, practically different. Everyone in your world will notice. The people you work with, your friends, your family, the people that are closest to you, and the people you only occasionally have interaction with, they will all notice the difference if you put into practice what Paul told the Philippian church. And I need to warn you on the front side of this sermon because I've already preached it once. I'm going to take what may seem like a long time to explain one phrase. And the reason for that is that phrase is so often misunderstood. And because it's misunderstood, it is ignored that if you 
fail to understand what Paul is saying in the first part of the passage, you'll miss the entire benefit of what he's telling you to do. Everything in this passage is so countercultural. It's so genuinely Christ-like that if you put it into practice, you'll be in the words of the passage itself. You'll be like a light shining in a dark place. You will hold out a message that the world is desperately hoping to hear, but they can't hear because it is so often ignored, misapplied in favor of our own understanding. Philippians chapter 2, please. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, you can hear how much Paul loves these people. They've been bonded by suffering, by fellow, by shared suffering. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, I love you and you've been doing a good job putting into practice what I taught you. But I'm not with you anymore. And now it matters even more. Put it into practice, he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And here is this phrase. Notice it's an imperative. It's a command. He's telling them to do something. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not a suggestion. It's not by way of explanation. If you read the Bible slowly, my number one Bible reading tip, you'll notice that's a direct instruction. He's telling them that they have to do something. And what he's telling them that they have to do is to work out their own salvation. And as they do that, they are to do it with fear and trembling. And those words seem so foreign, foreign even to the Bible itself, And then fear and trembling comes in, and that sounds like cringing and crouching away and hoping that you're not noticed, that working out your own salvation, whatever that means, and then to do it with fear and trembling, that just sounds like something of religious achievement mixed in with fear and dread of drudgery, and people don't know what to do with it, and they... They just read on. Never just read on in your Bible. If you don't understand something, stop and read it more slowly. Look at a different translation. Send me an email or a text message and say, I I have no idea what this means. Can you help me? And maybe I don't know either. But people have been following Jesus for 2,000 years and there's an extraordinary community of Christians down through the ages who have dedicated heart and mind to understanding what God told us. We can figure it out. And once you know what God tells you to do, when you put it into practice, your life will be different. What does it mean then to work out your own salvation? Every Christian, Paul says, is responsible to work out The salvation, and here's a simple phrase to keep in mind to help you understand what he means. You have to work out what God has already worked in. It does not mean that you work for your salvation. It does not mean that you achieve it. It does not mean that you, by moral self-improvement, by, as a guy told me as I was sharing the gospel with him years ago, he said, I try to do the right thing for the right reason. That's pretty good code. It's not enough to impress God. 
If God is holy and righteous, if he is blameless in all of his thoughts and deeds, if his very essence is righteousness and justice and holiness, if God is all of those things, me doing a little bit better, not going to cut it. There is no possible way any sinful, frail, broken human being, as we all are, can, by their own efforts, climb up to where God is and say, I belong with you, I'm like you. God is righteous and just. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and he is angry with the wicked every day. In other words, every evil thing that God sees on earth draws forth his indignation. He is holy and loving and just and merciful and all of those things perfectly all the time. How could anybody like you and me say, you and me, we're very much alike. We can hang out. I don't know if you've noticed people choose, every human being kind of chooses their moral level and the kind of people they hang out with. I found out doing prison ministry that even in the worst of prisons, there's always a pecking order. There's always a moral code. Some are always thought to be worse than others. And their, fa- their safety and sometimes even their lives are in danger because everyone who admits to being a criminal looks at others with contempt because their crimes are actually literally much worse. Before God's sight, every single person is already guilty. It's only a matter of degrees between us. Nothing we can do to impress him. So whatever Paul means, he can't possibly mean to work up your own salvation. To get to it, to achieve it, to climb up there. What he said instead is this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does he mean by working it out? I'm choosing this phrase. I need to work out what God has worked in. In simple language, God in human history has acted to save you. That's what Megan's song was about. Christ is born for you. Not merely to set you an example, not to give you an annual celebration with candles and gifts. No, he saw you dying and dead and sin, and he came after you. And the son of God, who was always with God and was always God, actually became a human being. That's what we just read in the first part of Philippians. He did not cling to his status and his privilege. He became a human being and being in a, being already a normal, ordinary Mortal human being, he humbled himself further by being obedient, Paul says, to the point of death and death on a cross. That's the story of Jesus. And he did that because you couldn't reach God, so Jesus reached down for you. That is what God has been at work in doing from eternity past. It's all God. I know that because verse 13 says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, anytime you obey God, it's because God gave you the motivation to do it. Anytime you desire to do the right thing and you did, it's because he gave you the capacity to do it. In other words, the want to and the can do. 
It's all comes from God. And what Paul is calling these Philippians to do, having reminded them of what Jesus did for them, is, in a word, you now get busy expressing what God has already given you. Work out the life that God has given you. Somebody texted me between services. Sometimes your comments and your questions are the most helpful thing in learning how to explain the Bible. I don't know if he learned this phrase from me or from someone else, but it's perfect. He said, your position in Christ is secure. The practical obedience, that has to be worked out. Exactly right. You are eternally and forever loved in Christ. That's why Christ did what it said in the first part of the chapter. That's why he, verse 7, emptied himself. That's why, verse 8, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that all of that is true, what you and I have to do is show it. We have to express it. That's what Paul means in the first part of chapter 2 when he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, if what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have done for you mean anything to you, come together. Be united Look after each other. Put the interest of other people ahead of your own. That's what it means to work it out. That is, don't miss it, that is your individual responsibility before Christ. The moment you came to salvation in Jesus, in Jesus Christ and He gifted you all this and He called you His brother or sister in the family of God, and God, who is a righteous judge, now becomes your loving Father. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life and applies the new life that Jesus died to give you. And you are welcomed into the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you enjoy God in all three persons, beginning now and lasting forever. All of that is true. That was all a gift to you. Now Paul is saying, show it out express it. Make sure that it shows up in your life. Make sure, as I'm going to show you, that other people can see it. That is, before God, your responsibility. Every Christian is responsible to work out what God has already worked in. If any one of you leaves this meeting thinking that you have to go out there and try harder so that God will love you and accept you, I've completely failed in this topic. You can't possibly compel God to love you. You can't impress him. On the contrary, the story of the gospel, the story that we've just celebrated at Christmas is that God takes the initiative. Romans 5 verse 8, perhaps you know it. God demonstrates his own love toward, it, toward us in this. While we were still sinners, what does the rest of it say? Christ died for us. While we were alienated and separated from God, God did all this. That's the burden of the first part of, the chap of chapter 2 of Philippians. We need to work it out individually. And secondly, our church is responsible to work it out. In other words, we're not a group of, we are not mere individuals. This is not a theater. I went to see the new Spider-Man movie with my family. I did not think about any other patron in the theater. 
Didn't give them a second thought. Barely thought about my kids sitting beside me while I watched the movie. I was just totally into it for myself. The church is not a theater where individual consumers come, consume content. If they like it, they come back. If they don't, they don't. If they like it, they support it. If they don't, they won't. No, the church is actually the family of God. It is the body of Christ. Paul is saying, Paul is writing in Philippians in plural you. You individual Christians have this responsibility, but you as a community, as a household of faith, as a congregation, you collectively are responsible to work out what God has worked in. What does it mean? Working out your salvation means, a very simple definition, it means becoming like Jesus in every part of our life. First as individuals and then as a congregation. Working it out means becoming like Jesus in every part of our life. So let's just sit there with a minute. If Jesus is the standard, if Jesus is the Savior, if Jesus is the boss, just ask you a really practical question. Are you more like him on January 2nd, 2022 than you were this time last year? And if so, what would you point out as evidence? Would you speak, for instance, maybe of your character? That you are more gracious and forgiving than you were this time last year? That you're more patient and long-suffering? Would you say that you're more self-controlled? Would you say that you're more compassionate or merciful? Would you, most of all, say that you're more loving and especially more loving toward people who actually don't like you? Because Jesus said to love our enemies. And not only did he say to do it, he demonstrated himself. He died for his enemies. He literally prayed for the men who were killing him on the cross. In that respect, would you say that you're more like Jesus having been given the gift of 2021? Who knows what 2022 will bring? You don't know. You may not make it to another year. This may be the last sermon I preach. We have no way of knowing. Life is fragile. With the time that you've already been given, would you say that in obedience to Jesus and in response to the God who is at work, not only to make you want to do it, but to actually give you the capacity to do it, have you become more like Jesus? That's the command. It doesn't mean only and always work in the world. It means becoming like Christ and the character of Christ compelled Christ to be active in the world. His activities were driven by who Jesus always has been. And what Paul's telling us here in verse 13 is this is all God's doing, but it's still our responsibility. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That means that grace does not eliminate the need for us to obey God. Grace makes it possible. Please don't misunderstand the grace of God. It doesn't mean you're forgiven. Go do what you like. It means you're forgiven and you belong to me now. Go be like my son, Jesus Christ. That's what the father would say to you. And we can work out our salvation because God is at work in us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a very familiar verse to Christians. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
Paul says, the gospel came in, he saved you, and I'm sure that God is going to keep working in you and finish the good work in you when he brings you to heaven. That's a certainty. God is going to do all of that. It's his plan, it's his energy, it's his motivation. It's all him, but it remains our responsibility. We can work out our salvation from God because the same God who saved us is now at work in us. And that's a long explanation so that you don't commit the eternally dangerous mistake of walking out here and saying, got it, Pastor Bruce, I'm going to try harder to save myself. Nope. Can't do it. His name is Savior because he's the one who does the saving. He's not a coach. He's not a helper. He's a Savior. And having given you his own life through his spirit, he now invites you to express the salvation he gave you at the cost of his own life so that people can see it. Everybody clear? Because I would be a cult member and a false religious teacher and do you the worst harm anyone ever could do if you took work out your own salvation and through my failure to explain it went out and just tried to be a better guy. It's not going to work. You can try, you might actually be a better person than you are today, but if you trust yourself for salvation, you'll be lost. That's why Jesus was born. That's why Jesus died. That's why Jesus rose again from the dead so you could have his life, not your own. He knew your life would never be sufficient. So if we're clear on all that, let me ask you the main question before we're done because now we're going to move much faster. How do we do this? Paul said in verse 13, work out, in verse 12, work out your own salvation. He said to do it with fear and trembling. In other words, with reverence and awe that you have been loved this way. That all of this has been done for you. That you have been given this much. That you should work out your own salvation remembering that God is already at work in you so that you will have the will and the ability to work for his good pleasure. How do we do it? Verse 14. If you have the English standard of the version of the Bible that I'm reading so we can all read the same thing. If you don't, just listen to the rest of us. But if you have the ESV, would you read verse 14 with me? What's it say? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How you doing out there? Verse 14 seems incredibly specific. I didn't really see that coming. The first part of chapter 2 is all about this cosmic work from God. Who the eternal son of God who was always with the father at a specific moment in history renounced not his identity but his privilege and became a human being and submitted to torture and death so that we could be saved. And now you are eternally loved. And the same God who saves you is still in you and still working on you. And still working through you. And you are now to practically express the position that you've been given. Amazing. Thank you, Paul. How do I do that? Stop griping and arguing. Oh, man. That's really tough. 
We work out the salvation that God gifted us, Paul says, by not grumbling or disputing. In other words, by not griping and arguing. Those two words are very carefully chosen. Grumbling is the internal bad attitude that everybody can perceive, but they can't hear it yet because it's on the inside. Disputing or arguing, that's when you let them know. Can I just ask you about the year that has just gone by? Would you say you've griped and argued less or more than you did in 2018, to take a year as a reference? I've heard more grumbling, more arguing, seen more pettiness than in ever in my entire life, and that's just me. Not to mention anybody else. Paul says that the expression of a life that Jesus has saved is a life that is free of griping and arguing, that it has extraordinary effects. Look at verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Please hear this. A life that is free of griping and arguing shapes godly character and it also shows godly character. Number one Bible reading tip, slow down. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. In other words, Paul is making an astonishing connection. He says to the Philippian church, if you'll stop griping and arguing, you will show up, you will become people who are blameless and innocent, who show up as people who belong to God, as his own kids, without blemish in the middle of a generation that is twisted and far from him. The refusal to gripe and complain, the refusal to grumble on the inside and argue on the outside has extraordinary effects. It helps shape a godly character. And I'm going to show you, it shows godly character as well. Verse 16, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Years ago, right in this center aisle, about 15 years ago, I had just come here as pastor. And our church was very different then. A lot has changed. A lot of time has passed. The church at that time was trying to do a children's ministry during the week, and one older man had self-appointed himself as a guardian and teacher and guide to children. And I'll never forget hearing him storm down the center aisle. I don't know what had gone wrong. I don't know what had happened to him. But I finally got to hear what his facial expression told me he believed every single day. Because as he walked away from the kids, headed down the center aisle, he grumbled to himself. I just happened to be sitting in, in one of the chairs beside him, and I heard him as he passed. He said to himself, I hate it here. And I thought, well, perfect. This is exactly what the kids need. They need the life and example of a guy who's been in church for 40 years who visibly talks about how much he hates it. That'll be great for the kids. When they see that following Jesus for decades makes you look like you just sucked a lemon and makes you so out of control of your words that you actually express hatred for the building dedicated to God, that'll bring the children in. 
That'll give them a goal to shoot for. That'll make them choose what kind of men and women they want to be. When you, in obedience to Jesus, choose to be done with griping and grumbling, it changes you. It requires everything that God has gifted you to stop griping and arguing. I'll show you. Look back a few pages in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Look in verse 22. Paul here is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which is simply the kind of life that the Spirit of Jesus produces in people. Notice it's singular. In other words, these aren't individual traits that you can choose. Rather, if you are in Christ and Jesus is being obeyed and you're following God's lead, this is the sort of life that naturally blooms out. This is salvation being worked out. This is salvation being expressed. Listen, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, against such things there is no law. Now look carefully at that list. How much of that do you need not to grumble and not to argue? I think you need all of it. If I'm loving, if I'm joyful, if I'm peaceful, if I'm patient, if I'm kind... If I'm good, if I'm faithful, if I'm gentle and I'm self-controlled, there's no arguing. I'm willing to let things go. I'm willing to look, overlook offenses. There's no grumbling because I am continually reminded by what I've just read in the Bible that God, without me even knowing He existed, and as soon as I knew that there was someone or something greater in the universe than me, I decided to ignore it anyway and do what I wanted instead. That God loving me that way has sent His Son for me to die on that cross and to give me His life And that now he is not only waiting for me, he is actually within me and beside me and guiding me and giving me not only the motivation, but the ability to become the kind of person that his son Jesus actually is. If I realize that I'm loved and forgiven that way, that I haven't been pardoned by a judge and sent away, that I've been that Jesus has satisfied the righteousness of God so that the Father who is a righteous judge can welcome me as a loving Father and give me His own name and prepare for me a home in heaven so that I can enjoy Him forever. And there I will enjoy not only the fellowship of God, but the fellowship of every single other person that He has ever saved. And that as the years go by, because I cannot, according to the Bible, see or hear or understand how much God loves me, as the centuries roll by in the new heaven and the new earth, I will continually be amazed that he loves me this much. And all of my past will be forgiven and forgotten. The things that once moved me to tears will no longer count because God himself, according to the end of Revelation, will wipe away my tears and all the struggles that I endured because of sin, the sin of others, the sin in the world, and the sin in my own heart has forever been taken away. How could I ever have room for griping and arguing if I know that I'm loved like that? 
That's why it shapes and shows godly character. Not only that, if you go back with me to Philippians 2, verse 16, notice Paul's rolling, it's still the same sentence. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of, I'm sorry, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as what? Lights in the world. I can't move on and be done until you see that connection. Paul says that the Christian commitment to not grumble and to not gripe makes Christians shine in a dark place. Among whom you shine, he said, as lights in the world. We talk about the stars coming out, but they don't. The stars are always there. The only time you can see them, except for the sun, of course, is when it's dark. You ever take a kid who grew up in the suburbs like we all live in, ever take him out to the country where it really actually gets dark? And on a clear night, have him look up. It's like the Griffith Observatory without the telescope. You can just look up and see thousands and thousands and thousands of stars. Listen, a lot of the grumbling and complaining that Christians have been doing is because Christians, for the first time in our nation's history, suddenly find themselves out of favor. We've enjoyed so much blessing, we've enjoyed so much freedom. And now, at least in some quarters, not only Jesus, but we are being spoken poorly of. And that's caused a tremendous amount of complaining and arguing and public disputing. This darkness that is encroaching in our country that we've all felt that has made so many Christians complain and gripe, I don't like it. I don't welcome it. But I can follow Paul's imagery. When the darkness closes in, that's when the light shines brightly. The reason you were placed in this crooked and twisted generation far from God, the reason you're living in this encroaching darkness is so that you would show the light of God to the world. And Paul says specifically the one thing you can and should do to express the salvation that Jesus has given to you is stop griping and arguing. And I wish he would have said anything except that. That is so practical. That is so intrusive. In the South, they would say that Paul has stopped preaching and gone to meddling. But many Christians have given themselves a privilege that Jesus did not allow himself They think that because they know God, they get to gripe and argue in public and in private as much as they wish. And it's just the opposite. Here's the thing, if I can use a word picture. Those of you who, like me, have raised children. Did you enjoy your kids griping and arguing and fighting with one another? Isn't that the one thing that made you want to take these precious lives that you loved so much and just strangle their little necks just for a moment. (laughs) Didn't you ever give the talk of how much you have to be grateful for? And you, my mother would say, I'll give you something to complain about. Anybody ever give that one? (laughs) There is nothing that will move a parent more quickly to frustration, disappointment, and sorrow than kids that grumble and argue all day long. I just ask you how your heavenly father must feel. 
See, what breaks a parent's heart is they don't know, the kids don't know how much mom and dad are trying. They don't know the sacrifices that have been made. Because they have always had them, they don't appreciate the blessings that they've been given. How must the heavenly father feel when he sees us, loved in the way I've just been describing, argue and grumble the way that we do? No, instead, verse 16, we need to be holding fast to the word of life. It says in my translation, holding fast to the word of life. Other translations say holding forth the word of life. Which is it? It's both. Because a life that does not, a Christian life that refuses to grumble and argue, holds on to and holds out to others the life-saving news of Jesus to make it really clear and practical. Why would the world ever believe that we have good news to tell if all they hear is our griping? If we are ungrateful, grumbling people who are continually in disputations with them and with other Christians, how could they ever possibly believe that we have good news to announce? And then Paul says, amazingly, verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, and that's a very poetic way for Paul to say, even if they kill me. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I don't want you to miss the magnitude of what Paul's saying, and I'm done. Paul's saying, if I hear that you have become the kind of congregation that out of love and gratitude for Jesus who died on the cross for you stops griping and arguing, I don't care if they kill me. It will have been worth it to sacrifice my life to be killed by these same Romans that killed Jesus in death. I'll know it was worth it if only I can hear that you're not griping and arguing. A life free of griping and arguing proves that the investment that other Christians have made in us was worthwhile. If you know the gospel of Christ, it is because a family member or somebody who loved you enough to tell you about Jesus has invested that gift into you. They took time, they took love, they took courage. It may have taken them a great deal of patience, but they have presented the good news to you. And by their witness and your trust in Christ, you today are saved. If you will work out your own salvation... By learning to live as Jesus did without grumbling and without petty disputation, you will make their eternal investment worthwhile. You will bring joy to the Christians who have helped you grow up in the faith. What kind of difference will this make at our church? And this is why I'm so grateful to you. And none of this message is a rebuke. It's actually an encouragement. It's a celebration and an affirmation of the kind of church we've been becoming, and particularly in the last two years since the pandemic began. Because I can't begin to tell you, I've been in ministry for 32 years, I could not conceive of a church going through all that we have, and it hasn't only been the pandemic, with as many people responding with faith and love and grace and patience and kindness and joy and self-control and bearing with one another so that there's 
never an attitude of what do we have to do and why do we have to do it. It's always a how can we serve? How, more, how much more can we give? Who can we help? And I'm so grateful for that. When a church, when a body of believers embraces this, what results is a church unified by obedience to God and humility toward one another. That to me has been so moving because I don't know if in the pandemic you noticed everybody suddenly became an expert on everything. But you, as a collective body, the six or 700 people who call this place home and are here on most weekends, with very few exceptions, deferred to one another, trusted and loved one another, and bore one another's burdens so well that I'll never forget it. I've been telling you it's been a dark hour, but it's also been the finest life I've ever seen in any congregation I've been part of. Second thing that will happen is we will become a church that shines the light of the gospel by its attitude and its actions. Since the pandemic began, you've heard many Christian leaders calling correctly for us to hold on to the faith of the apostles. Many, most Christian churches are doing that well. What has suffered is the attitude of the apostles who were willing to suffer, who were willing to be misunderstood who were willing to be maligned and imprisoned and betrayed all for the sake of Jesus and all for the sake of holding out the gospel to other people. And thirdly and finally, and this is why I'm so grateful to be part of this church family, a church that renounces grumbling and arguing out of love for Jesus to express the salvation he gave us becomes a church that is fueled by joyful obedience to God rather than a dutiful obligation to God. You have shown more than any congregation I've ever been part of, including the mission field, an attitude that says I get to rather than I have to. And it makes all the difference. If you take all of your responsibilities before Christ and see them not only as responsibilities, but as the gifts and the privileges they are, so that you get to love, you get to to forgive. You get to give and to support financially. You get to serve. You get to endure injustice at the hands of others, not because they're right, but because Jesus is worth it. It has a transformational effect on everybody. And if in this year to come, you'll make serious inventory of the kind of person you've become in the last two years under this kind of pressure, and if you've noticed, as I have, that grumbling and disputing crops up all too easily, And you say to Jesus, in obedience to you, out of gratitude to you, I'm done with my griping. And I'm going to keep quiet and bear with it and love them instead of griping about them. Wait and see what kind of person you are six weeks from now. Imagine if through your peaceful, enduring, patient, loving, self-controlled spirit, in other words, the spirit of Jesus, you were 10% more like Jesus is than you are today. How much would that change your friendships? What a blessing would that be at your job? What would that mean to your spouse? What would that mean to your friends? What would that mean to your kids and your grandkids if you were 10% more like Jesus and instead of petty griping and arguing and disputing, you held back and out of obedience to Jesus, you chose to keep quiet and they can tell you want to say something because your jaw is twitching because this is new to you and you're not quite ready to do it very well. But you get better at it and you get better at it and you get better at it and you talk to Jesus and you say, that was really hard, but I did that for you. Thank you for helping me keep my mouth closed. 
and you were grateful instead. You put that into practice for six weeks, for eight weeks, you'll be so different. People will see that light is shining in a dark place. They might think that the gospel makes a difference because my contention and the reason for this sermon is Christians keep up their grumbling. They're not very much going to believe the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the time that we've spent together. Give Christians now, Lord, a time to assess. Hey, can I just ask you in closing, are you a griper? Are you an arguer? Are you the kind of person that's got to let them know? I've just tried as best I can at great length to tell you how much that costs you and how much it'll mean to the Lord and how it will bless others if you stop doing that and work out your salvation instead by not grumbling, by not arguing. If you've discovered that that's been your habit, you've been kind of bent toward at least internal grumbling, if not public arguing, could you just talk to Jesus about it? Ask His forgiveness. Ask for His power to change, to become like Him. Verse says He's already at work in you. He will certainly answer. You can certainly do this. You can certainly obey. You can certainly change if you'll ask Him. And if you don't know, Jesus, I've been telling you the gospel this whole sermon. Please give up on whatever you've been trying to do, whatever you've been trusting, and call out to Him for mercy and salvation instead. Jesus, change us. Change me. May we remember, Lord, because of what you impressed on our hearts this morning, may we be able to look back a few weeks from now and see that in our individual lives, in our homes, in our jobs, in our schools, and in our shared life together as a congregation, we truly have become different because we have chosen to obey you. I pray it in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, Amen. Folks, let's go out with gratitude in the gospel. No grumbling. Love you. Happy New Year.